geology, geology, geology. This is Daniel Minizini, your inquisitive geologist, and welcome to another program of the Mini Geology Show. Today we'll talk about the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, known as IPCC. We'll talk with Kim Cobb, professor at the Georgia Institute of Technology. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is the United Nations body for assessing the science that is related to climate change. It was set up in 1988 by the World Meteorological Organization and the United Nations Environmental Program to provide policymakers with regular assessments of the scientific basis on climate change, on its impact, and also on the future risks, and also the options for the adaptation and what is called the mitigation. So since 1988, the IPCC has produced five comprehensive assessment reports. They are called assessment reports, the documents uh, produced. And the last one was released in uh, 2014. Now the sixth is coming in 2021. And it will consist of three working group contributions and also one synthesis report which will come out a year later in 2022. Uh, meanwhile, four documents have been already produced. A methodology report to refine the guidelines for national greenhouse gas inventories and then three special reports. One on the impacts of the global warming of 1.5 Celsius degrees with respect to the pre-industrial levels. A second one on the oceans in the cryosphere on a changing climate. And a third on the climate change in land. So a lot to read. So let's get some help here from Kim Cobb. Kim, welcome to the Mini Geology Show. <laughs> Great to be here. So Kim, you are part of the IPCC. Tell us what is your role, please. Yes, so I am very honored to be a lead author on chapter one, and I think there are 12 chapters total and then a very ambitious atlas to provide interactive maps for the community as part of this assessment as well. So one of 156 authors who are involved in drafting the sixth assessment report. All right, so you are first author in the chapter one of the sixth assessment report. Well, there's an IPCC, there's no uh, real first, second, third author. Uh, we have coordinating lead authors who are those people who are in charge of keeping the, the train on schedule, making sure that the work is coordinated across the various chapters, of course, which is extremely important. And then, of course, making sure that the rest of us abide by our uh, collectively agreed deadlines for portions of text and figures, et cetera. And so this is the deep into the second year of a three-year process term that we have been working on this assessment report so far. What do you have to do uh, to be part of such an important panel, the IPCC? Well, you know, like many things in science, that you consider a deep honor. You don't know how you got there. <laughs> so this is really no different. And so, um, of course, the composition of the author teams is really dictated and chosen by the United Nations, you know, which has the governing body around the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and they do the ultimate selections. And nominations can come from the different nation states who are contributing to uh, the uh, framework. And of course, they can also uh, come from different uh, multinational organizations uh, that do science governance, like um, you know, CLIVAR on climate variability, or PAGES in the case of the Paleo Climate Community, which is uh, you know, all these ones that include representation from all different kinds of nations to move international science forward. So you can find nominations bubbling up from the community, and then uh, they're selected by the, uh, the IPCC uh, board and then you get these crazy emails saying, you know, you have 
been nominated and here's the next three years of your life we're asking for. And then you, you I guess, say yes and you commit how did to you, How did you feel when you received very, that? very large amount of work. Yeah. Do you remember when you received that email? Yes, I do. <laughs> I remember exactly where I was sitting. I was sitting in class and I was watching my co-instructor lecture and I was scrolling through my emails and I got an email from uh, Valerie Maison Delmont, who is the chair of Working Group One, which is the physical science uh, portion of the three reports that you mentioned. So it's the compendium of all the climate science research the physical science, uh, biogeochemistry, paleoclimate, atmospheric science, all of that gets synthesized in working group one. And so she's the chair. And so I got this email from her with this long, long, long thing. And then this very formal looking letter attached, right? That's how you know it's, it's for real when there's attachment that you can't open. And then, uh, you know, I remember looking at the schedule for the author meetings and there were, I think there are four uh, lead author meetings where all of these authors are supposed to convene and take some very significant steps forward. And I remember looking at that schedule and saying, wow, these are all pretty far away and they're pretty extended meetings. And I'm already thinking about the implications to my family. I'm already thinking about the implications for my carbon footprint. And I'm taking some deep breaths and looking at all the work that I know will come, but ultimately um, it was really an opportunity I've been wanting for so long, and uh, it has been such an honor, and I will be so, so proud of the work that we are able to put together and push forward next year in 2021. So how has your life changed since then? Well, you know, it definitely gets a lot of time spent on uh, telecoms every two weeks. So since uh, January 2019, when we had our, our first lead author meeting, we've kicked off these unending schedule of Zoom calls across with authors from across the entire world. So from my chapter, where we have, I think, 15 lead authors, uh, we have people from Japan and uh, all across Europe, Africa, of course, Asia, um, all of these authors on different time zones. And so people show up with these bleary eyes, sometimes me included, as we rotate the timing of the call. And we've been getting to know each other very well. And then we have work that we need to do between those calls and around big deadlines, with big draft deadlines, you know, your calendar just gets completely wiped and you go into IPCC mode with, uh, in good company with 156 other people around the planet who are <laughs> sweating the same deadline. So it's, it's a very strong sense of collective and an incredibly strong sense of purpose. And as, as we all know, with the accelerating indices of uh, man-made climate change all around us, just in increasingly urgent. And so you kind of feel that, that, uh, that uh, contribution that, that is so critical to make these days to inform the best policies. And it's something I take quite seriously along with all the other co-authors as well. And so you say that you have these meetings virtually with Zoom, uh, which most of us, we start using with the pandemic. So can you really uh, create a, a, a strong tide and bonding uh, with people through the virtual meetings. It works. Well, yeah, we don't only have those. So we have had um, two uh, lead author meetings, three, I think, three actually, three to date. Um, the first one I wasn't able to attend, in fact, because I had a pre-scheduled family vacation because it was such a short time from the inception of the process. But the other two I was able to attend, and, and those, of course, are where you get to know each other better. But I have to say that, you know, uh, we've spent so much time together on Zoom as well. <laughs> and it's really when you have to push through these very intensive periods of work together and you have to coordinate very well, you have to trust each other as well. And that's a key word in science. We don't talk about that as much as we should. But when you're under collective deadline and you're relying on each other for pieces of text or contributions to figures or feedback and review internally, um, you know, when the rubber hits the road, you really bond, quite frankly. And so, yes, we bond on Zoom and we bond through these deadlines, even as much, if, if not more, than when we bond in our in-person meetings, which is a, a super small fraction of the amount of time that we have devoted to each other over the course of the IPCC writing process. Let's dive into the IPCC, uh, which 
does not conduct its own research. IPCC uh, identifies three main things uh, based on what I read in the webpage of the IPCC. One is the agreement in the scientific community. The second thing is identifies where further research is needed. And the third point is where there are differences in opinion. I would like to touch with you these three points. What are the main points of agreement in the IPCC? And what is the weakest point in this agreement? Oh my goodness. I mean, you know, that, that's absolutely an impossible question to answer. Um, you know, we are, we are really synthesizing across the entire field and the level of you know agreement varies from something as basic as um, humans have caused you know most of if not all of the warming since 1950 uh yes no and to what likelihood you know that that is probably the strongest uh, level of statement that um, ipcc has made historically and certainly one that we can anticipate will be strengthened in the next report uh, you can look to the um, fifth assessment report that was released in 2014 that you referenced uh, for the difference between the things that we uh, strongly agree on and that we must emphasize the policy community and those things which are at the fuzzy, uh, foggy stage of things that we're keeping a close eye on and uh, we're, we're willing to say that maybe there's some indication, but we're attaching uh, much less certain language to that potential impact. And so in IPCC, you don't get to say, you know, we generally agree, or there's consensus around this topic, or there's less certainty here. Um, we use a calibrated set of language, in fact, which really is designed to give the reader an idea of the statistical weight and the accuracy and certainty behind a given statement in a table that is literally written out what we mean by the word likely what we mean by very likely extremely likely and virtually certain and so all of these have significance levels which dial up and up and up to our strongest levels of statement that we of course are incontrovertible uh, scientific fact for example in some cases and so down on the margins is where it gets very interesting when you have competing ideas in the literature to reconcile. Uh, you must represent those when they're of critical importance to stakeholders. Um, you know, some of these things involve uh, issues related to extreme events where the instrumental record is relatively short. Unfortunately, the impacts are extreme and uh, people are very worried about these connections. And in many cases, we're still left saying, uh, while there is some indication, uh, dot, dot, you know, we are, we are still uh, relatively less certain or uh, need more further work needs to be done. And so there's this whole range across all of this literature and our job is to assess with this calibrated language and present something that is a strong consensus across the entire IPCC team of 156 authors of what is agreeable about that calibrated language with respect to this entire long list of potential impacts. What is the weakest point within the agreement? Well, I mean, there are many. <laughs> there are many areas where we wish we knew more, where we wish the science was more advanced. Um, some of these are not going to be a surprise, like uh, how fast ice sheets will melt uh, this century or the next century. Um, already an issue in the last assessment report, in the literature, a hotly debated topic. So where you see these issues being debated um, with papers that are coming out week to week to week that are trying to advance and move us forward, um, and sometimes that is a, a, a fraught process of back and forth, then you can see areas where there's going to be a higher level of uncertainty in the report. Uh, we just reflect the base of literature that is avail available to the team at the time. We, we go no further than that, and that would be awful if we did. So it's really grounded in the peer review literature, and in fact, so strongly that there's a cutoff date beyond which you cannot assess any, any further literature into the synthesis report. And so with the pandemic, I think that uh, that cutoff date has slipped by a couple months 
I think it's uh, January of this next year. It was, I think, September of this year. So it slipped a little bit, but beyond that wall, even if a pile of new papers comes out indicating a certain direction or providing stronger consensus or weakening consensus where there already exists, uh, it will not be in the synthesis report. And that's to make sure we are grounded on a common set of literature that we can digest for the report. Do you want to add uh, any other topic uh, where research is still needed beyond the one about the ice cap meltings? Well, I mean, certainly I already talked about extremes, and this is also not a newsflash, right? I mean, this has always been a sticky issue within the climate community because the records of the strongest extremes, there are just so few of them in the instrumental record. I study one of those areas, which is the El Nino Southern Oscillation, which uh, is an interannual phenomenon. It's, it's global in scope in terms of impacts, but it's uh, born and bred in the tropical Pacific, if you will. And unfortunately, with events that occur every two to seven, eight years, uh, 50, 70 years of record just doesn't get you many events to study. And so compiling statistics about whether a cycle like that is impacted by greenhouse gases and climate change is a very tall order if you just use the instrumental record. And so, of course, we try to draw from all different kinds of other sources of information, models, paleoclimate evidence, uh, to try to shore up some of these most important questions. But ultimately, in many cases, uh, it's going to require uh, significantly further research to get to the levels of certainty that some stakeholders will need. How do you I think it's also your... important to note in the report that it's all stakeholders don't need the same level of certainty. And, and that's, I think, a nuance that many people in the public don't quite appreciate. There's not a magical line in the sand that says, I'm only going to, the, the impacts that have a 99% likelihood are the ones that I care about or the ones that you should care about. No two stakeholders are the same because no two stakeholders have an identical uh, profile of risk and vulnerability. Give us an and example so, of, of two different stakeholders. So let's say you're talking about sea level rise. This is a classic example, right? If you have a nuclear energy plant close to a coastline and you're worried about its safety over the next 50 years, you have a very different tolerance for risk than somebody who has a vacation house that they may or may not like to hand down to their grandchildren. So this, these are two very different kinds of stakeholders and it really tried to illustrate that one has a very low, very low risk tolerance and one has a significantly higher risk tolerance perhaps. And so that's just one example, but of course there are countless others across every different climate field of interest. Uh, drought, right? Wildfires, um, hurricanes, all of these things will have stakeholders that can tolerate uh, very, very tiny margins and their risk is going to skyrocket. And then you have stakeholders that are less sensitive uh, to that particular impact. And so our job is to put forward and clearly articulate um, what we feel is, is most certain that that nuclear plant really should incorporate into their risk assessment what best that the best science says about what their vulnerability may be over the next 50 years. Uh, and then, of course, note that it could be less, it could be more, and try to provide the context for them to assess um, some of the probability around scenarios uh, that, that they may need to uh, further refine their risk assessment. And so this is very complicated territory, which really leads us immediately into working group two, which is where the impacts come alive, if you will, where they take the output from the climate science information on the physical side, and they work it through a model of uh, regions and countries and communities, um, sectors that are vulnerable. And they try to translate that into the impacts that, that we actually care about. Um, not, you know, nobody really cares if it's, if it's a degree uh, warmer in, in the next decade. We really, really care about how that translates into heat waves for vulnerable regions. We really care about how that translates into crop yields uh, where people are going to depend on food. And so all these follow-on uh, consequence chains that go into the risk and vulnerability equations are where working group two comes in and where we really stop. We just really hand over 
the physical climate information. What about the internal debates and uh, um, the differences in, in opinion? You have already mentioned them uh, a little bit, but would you like to uh, extend uh, your uh, your views on what are the internal debates at the IPCC? Not may, Maybe not necessarily scientifically. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, you know, it's really hard to get a... Um, a visceral sense or a true sense of the amount of diversity that is represented across the IPCC writing team. And, you know, I mean that with respect to obviously the, the nations, which we've already mentioned, the, uh, the international diversity of the writing team is like nothing I've ever been a part of uh, by far and you look around and you see it immediately right um, but beyond that very visible presence of diversity in the room you have cultural diversity in the room and then you have disciplinary diversity in the room you have junior versus senior diversity in the room you have gender you have racial diversity in the room and this becomes a uh, kind of a, a soup of uh, potential areas where people don't see eye to eye and actually, of course, the IPCC will, will say that that is its strength. And I believe that that is the case, that through these diverse perspectives, through these different lived experiences, through these different priorities, scientifically or personally, through the translation of our own values into the document, uh, which is a thing, uh, we end up with, with the richest, most representative synthesis of the available information that we can possibly get. And that's what makes it so robust. That's what makes it such an amazing uh, roadmap and compass for the entire international policy community as we wrangle with, of course, the, you know, one of the primary global issues of our day. What about the debates? Now, I understand that is a very beautiful uh, point for the team that you, where you belong now. But within this um, diversity, what do you discuss about when you are maybe physically and you can talk all at once instead of being on Zoom where you have to wait uh, uh, for your turn? To butt in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that the discourse is um, extremely civil and, and very, very inclusive. Um, I've seen extremely heated discussions at scientific workshops and conferences before over issues that are seemingly fairly minute in comparison to some of the issues that we discuss across the IPCC team. Um, but, you know, you do build relationships across the report as well. Um, and you have a chance uh, in many different kinds of ways to voice your opinion at different stages through different mechanisms. Uh, we have an internal review process. There's an external review you can participate in. Um, there's a feedback process even to the IPCC from an individual author if you want. There's through your chapter team. There's cross-chapter teams. We have a cross-chapter team on paleoclimate, for example, uh, to help us work together to coordinate the presence of that body of work across the report. And so we get into discussions um, that you know, are really about priorities and pieces that we hope don't fall through cracks and uh, literature that we'd like to lift up for collective review and discussion. Um, but ultimately, it does advance on a consensus basis. And so um, that has always been the uh, critique of the IPCC that is so strongly wedded to consensus um, that it downplays some of the um, uh, less certain aspects or more serious risks, if you will, that may be supported by some lines of evidence, but is not something that uh, really has formed consensus around it yet. And so really one voice can raise an issue, but it's going to take multiple people to champion something you know, with a strong presence into the document. And so that is an, that's these loops of, of refinements and drafting and comments and review. That's why it takes three years because this is designed to be a very robust, very inclusive, uh, and, and consensus-driven approach. You um, have lately provided comments and, um, to the U.S. House Natural Resource Committee. Uh, how did you feel before the talk? And uh, <laughs> yeah. yes, 
let us know when you prepare your talks, like with the IPCC or uh, in here in the US House of Representatives. So they're obviously very different audiences. I mean, in the IPCC, you're working with a bunch of colleagues who are very much like yourself in terms of uh, being, you know, mostly researchers and, you know, understanding the scientific method and uh, with deep passion for the field and a, a will to move this body of work forward and contribute as they can, feel the role and responsibility on their shoulders. That's very different. Right. When you stand up and you say something, you're speaking to to, you know, the choir. These are your, you know, dear friends. You just didn't know them before, but they're your dear friends. When you go into the U.S. House of Representatives, especially uh, in its uh, current form, you know, you're, you're dealing with a highly politicized landscape. The hearing that I was um, asked to uh, testify at was actually the first climate science related hearing in years. <laughs> And so the previous ones were no picnic. They were really a lot of fireworks, a lot of heated rhetoric, a lot of personal attacks. Um, and I just wasn't sure I wanted any part of it. But again, um, it's, a, it's a deep honor uh, to represent our, our field in that forum. And as somebody who comes from Georgia, which is a very large purple state in this country, I, I felt like getting some of our messages out and there's maybe slightly different than they've heard before and a little bit less, um, little bit less partisan in, by nature here in Georgia. That's how we work here. And so um, I was very honored and, and when I walked into the room, I was shaking like a leaf, even though I had spent over 40 hours in the last week preparing that five page document. Um, and, and just, you know, quite, quite terrified and overwhelmed about the whole thing and prepared for the worst, quite frankly. That's really what I was, prepared for the worst. And um, thankfully, there really were no fireworks. Um, there was, in the intervening years between the last climate hearing and the one that I did, um, as you can appreciate, there's been a tide <laughs> creeping into this nation that really helps us understand from a collective standpoint, how important this topic is. Um, it's a real and present threat to Americans and we have to get to solutions. And so most of the debate was around the solution side, right? And, and very, very little was designed to undercut the um, key findings of climate scientists. And so I didn't really get many questions um, along that vein and in general thought that the conversation was uh, fairly constructive, I would say, surprisingly so for me. And, well, you know, we've seen that again and again in hearings since as well, by the way. Well, what does it mean that you were prepared for the wars? What was no, it? I was, I was prepared to be personally vilified. I was prepared for people to have dug up all kinds of dirt on me or uh, try to take me to task for a body of work that I hadn't personally contributed to and, and try to uh, pin me to a wall as a sacrificial lamb on behalf of somebody else who um, uh, they had a bone to pick. So I was really prepared for the worst. And uh, it's hard to prepare for the worst, by the way, because you know that could be anything. So I, in that sense, I felt unprepared for the worst. Um, but you know the preparation that went into it was, was deep and profound and several colleagues helped me uh, put together the testimony and review it so that I, I felt on solid ground scientifically. Um, but you know, when you open the gates to that kind of um, politicized environment, it, it is, you, just, you just never know. And I think it's a testament to where we've come in this country and how climate scientists have worked so hard to advance the understanding of what we're up against collectively, that the, the tide did turn significantly from those uh, firework episodes of you know, overt climate denial to what we have now, which is some perhaps more honest debate around which solutions make sense and make sense for whom. And, and that's, that's good, that's healthy. And I wish we could uh, come to consensus, come to consensus around what those solutions are and get going because we've lost a couple decades if you haven't been paying attention and uh but you know this is a process and right now we lack uh, national level leadership that could uh, help this um, framework come together but there are some uh, really important points of light and uh, rays of hope even amongst um, people who were formerly 
quite in oppositional to climate science and climate findings who now want to work with climate scientists to help understand what their communities are facing and how they can help protect their constituents and their economy. And Kim, what is the um, collaboration, what kind of collaboration do you have with industry being involved in the IPCC? I'm thinking about the main industries associated uh, uh, with the emissions of yeah. the greenhouse gases like uh, oil and gas or, or farming or construction. Yeah. So, you know, we as IPCC, you know, working group one, certainly I can say we have um, no direct relationship or exchange of, of information um, with the people who are outside the uh, creation of the peer reviewed knowledge base. So if there are scientists who are contributing to the body of work uh, that, that gets into the peer reviewed literature, then we will be digesting that information and synthesizing along with any other uh, body of work in the peer reviewed literature. But you know, the IPCC is, is not a, um, engaging with stakeholders, it is synthesizing information. And there's a big difference. And so I think when I look at the work that we have going on in Georgia, um, we have a major project called Drawdown Georgia, which is a, a child, if you will, of Project Drawdown, which was an analysis at the global scale of what we need to do to reduce emissions. Then you know we have uh, the, the reality in Georgia that we, we are very engaged with stakeholders. We are collecting their input, their data, and uh, trying to engage them in thinking about what a low carbon future would look like in Georgia. And, and that's a very different exercise <laughs> and something that is ongoing and something I value very deeply as somebody who is committed to uh, frequent and clear communication of the science and incorporation of stakeholder input in helping shape, to sh shape the research agenda around areas that stakeholders need to know more about. So that's a scale that I think is really well suited um, to that kind of stakeholder framework. But of course, when they come together um, for the large agreements like the Paris Agreement, uh, you, can, you can rest assured that kind of all those interests are represented in the room through the policymakers that are representing the interests from their various nation states. And so that is a messy process. And, I don't know if I would ever have the honor to be involved in directly in something like that as a, a lowly scientist, um, but it does uh, really warm my heart to think that they are poring over these documents that we're generating, and they're they're really digging their teeth into understanding uh, what our future holds and how what we need to do about it to turn this around and what it's going to take, and then hopefully lifting up frameworks that will support that path. And uh, how do you judge the behavior of uh, industry in general with respect to uh, climate change? I mean, you know, lagging would be a kind word. <laughs> That's the kindest word I can use, lagging. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think there are many other uh, stories out there with some important data to support them, um, suggesting that uh, some of these industries are actively obstructing uh, the uh, consolidation of our research findings into policy and including, um, you know, funding misinformation campaigns so that the general public remains uh, confused about the issue. And, you know, I, I think uh, while there's something to be said for that, I, I'm, there's also something to be said for the ideological divide that is so ready-made in this country that uh, pits people who want to walk down a path of towards our low carbon future and who understand the necessity and are willing to embrace the structural changes that that means with a whole other group of people um, who say, you know, to put it bluntly, no thank you, and uh, see a, a role for expanding government as counter to everything they believe in. And so I think part of the challenge to the climate science community is to help them understand that that is not the case, <laughs> that we actually have, you know, big government at play pushing in the wrong direction, even as we speak. 
And so if we want to build a framework that moves us and accelerates to our low carbon future, uh, we just need to repurpose some of the tools that already exist and point them in the right direction. And so, you know, this is just a, um, a, a kind of a, a false choice that has been perpetuated uh, by um, largely uh, politicians on the far right end of the spectrum and, you know, people who don't want to uh, embrace a low carbon future. And to say we can have economic growth or we can have uh, a low carbon future, or we can have big government or we can have small government. Um, all of these things are, are false choices. And we know because we can see other nations going forward with successful frameworks for growing their economy while reducing their emissions. We have examples here in our own country of states that are growing their economies while reducing emissions and reducing inequality. And so we can have these solutions together and we have increasingly a large number of examples at our fingertips because we are so far behind. And so we just need to follow these examples and implement them at the federal landscape. And actually, quite frankly, I feel pretty confident that that day will come. Unfortunately, it's never soon enough. You are mentioning and implying uh, uh, that the United States of America has a very important role in the IPCC. Is that true? What do you think about the role of the U.S.? Well, you know, in the IPCC, we have as important a role as, as any other um, large, uh, wealthy country. And so the, the author list is, is, is distributed across, you know, a very large number of countries. Um, I mean, sometimes. for the implications of the actions, the... Uh, that the United oh, States. Oh, yes. And it turns a translation into global frameworks. Uh, absolutely. I mean, we are no longer the largest emitter. Uh, we are still the largest per capita emitter. And, you know, we really have been the thorn in the side of the global movement for large scale and aggressive emissions reductions. And so, you know, we, we have played chicken, you know, with everybody else. And, you know, it's a dangerous, dangerous game, uh, you know, saying, well, you know, we'll do it if you do it or we'll do it if you do this. And, and now we'll do nothing for the moment. Do you, Kim, do you, you are an American citizen and yes. live in the U.S. Do, do yes. you feel that you have a, a stronger, higher responsibility uh, for moving forward the goals of the IPCC because you live in the U.S.? Because yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I personally, and this is my personal stance, you ask me, you know, I feel a moral obligation to lead on this issue because we are responsible for such a large share of historical emissions that are, are really what has caused the warming to date and will cause a good portion of it going forward with our current and future emissions trajectories. And so that is, and we have, and second of all, because of that in part, we have the wealth and advanced technologies that can really help the globe scale to meet this challenge uh, through advanced renewable technologies, advanced nuclear technologies, um, energy efficiency at scale, uh, EV transportation sectors that uh, need to crop up overnight. I mean, all of these things we can be leading on and really leading the 21st century global economy if we so choose. We have everything at our fingertips. And we have, in my view, the moral obligation to, to lead in this domain because of our uh, role in historical and current emissions. It sounds a little bit like uh, uh, United States or the richest countries that have the same uh, responsibility of United States. Uh, may have to compensate other parts of the world, similarly to what uh, happened with slavery. Well, it's not that we've compensated <laughs> uh, black people in this country. So that, that is the argument around reparations, of course. But within the IPCC framework, um, there is a mechanism for richer countries to come together and produce the funding that will help uh, very much poorer countries, um, you know, at least be less damaged by the present and future climate impacts. And so, you know, they, they call this the adaptation fund, 
and it has a specified target that's written into the Paris Agreement. So on the one hand, there's emissions reductions, um, a map, a roadmap of emissions reductions that are supposed to be enacted to meet the goals. And on the other hand, there's the creation and funding in a sustained way of this adaptation fund, which is so desperately needed uh, across the developing nations. And so, you know, those are the two branches of, of the Paris Agreement. I don't think any of them is, is going swimmingly right now. Um, and with the global recession, I'm sure it's going to be even worse going forward. Uh, but this is a, a critical piece to any climate framework. We've heard about this again and again. On the global scale, it's the adaptation fund through the Paris Agreement. Um, here in the United States, it's also the recognition that the climate impacts will be raining down on the low-income communities, communities of color, uh, first and worst. They've already been suffering from these impacts to date, and they will continue to bear the brunt of the cost for climate change with their lives and livelihoods. And so if we think about what that means here in this country, we, we are reminded of the call for climate justice and the importance of recognizing uh, the, the funding that it will take to protect these frontline communities, the resourcing and policy structures that will protect them from the present and future climate impacts. It can't just be emissions reduction. So that is a component of policy at both scales that is the recipe for success, in my opinion, for effective climate action. And uh, I think, uh, Kim, that you are a professor also on diversity, equity, and inclusion, if I'm not wrong, an advanced professor at your university. Can you explain, uh, uh, with respect to what you just mentioned, uh, what it means to be professor of diversity, equity, and inclusion? Yes, yeah, so it's a very special role at Georgia Tech. And these roles are one per six college. So we have all College of Science, College of Engineering, and each of them has an advanced professor appointed to that role. And that allows a, a group of professors to sit at the institutional level and look out over their units and also up to the upper administration and really advance policies that promote diversity, equity, inclusion on our campus in a cross-campus coordinated way. And so, you know, many, including Georgia Tech, many universities have a, um, an administrative unit that is really tasked with institutional diversity. And in fact, ours is called the Institute of Diversity. And so it has its own chain of command straight to the president at Georgia Tech. But we play a different role. We actually sit as faculty, embedded, if you will, um, in our units and able to lift up input and feedback from students and faculty, synthesize it, make policy recommendations that can impact the units across us and, and across the institute, or of course, affect institute policy itself. And so it's a very special role that I, I hold very dear. I've been a professor in that role for four years and have another two at least to do. And I've, I've learned a lot. And in this particular age, uh, finding myself um, of course, very, very busy with the ongoing discussions of uh, racial justice, uh, Georgia Tech's role as an Atlanta-based institution um, based in the South, uh, what is our role for being part of the structural change. And so, you know, these are, these are busy times and important times and a role like the one that I hold is, is part of the solution at Georgia Tech and beyond as an amplifier for other voices that are so critically important right now. Is there anything about this role that you have uh, as a diversity, equity and inclusion professor that you can transport into your work at IPCC and vice versa, bringing back to your university, your, the special and unique uh, experience you are making at IPCC? Yes, that's a very interesting question. I think, you know, what I bring to my writing team is um, something that recognizes the importance of process and inclusivity in arriving at a good product, frankly. You can't divorce the two. Uh, they come together. And so while we seem so focused on getting, getting the product right, getting the science right, 
um, you know, writing it well and having the best figures, uh, really, we're not going to get there unless we have a process that focuses on equity and inclusion. And so really, it's about um, making, making sure that where my contributions are, that they are advancing that specific goal on my writing team and where possible across the entire 156-person uh, author team, uh, working with people who are like-minded across that author team to unearth uh, areas of problems, challenges, and opportunities for the IPCC itself to evolve. And so that has been uh, challenging and rewarding. And another area of work for those of us who, who, is, who are aspiring allies in this space. And then to your second question about how that has informed back into uh, my work at Georgia Tech, I've also come to recognize the importance of this, uh, let's say, uh, cumbersome coordination <laughs> and the long game that the IPCC has. And, you know, I, I, it's just an honor to be, you know, part of what is now a 30-year-long train, and I hope it will continue for another 30. I think it's ever relevant, um, but to make, to make a small contribution and to realize that you're, you're part of something much bigger, much longer, you know, than, than any one career even. And thinking about what that means for my work at Georgia Tech, um, I'm always thinking about how I can enact uh, structural change at Georgia Tech to advance our climate forward agenda or advanced diversity and equity inclusion. And, and these are structural challenges. And so I've kind of brought back an idea of, of starting to build a community together and to be okay with it taking a long time. <laughs> and to, you know, uh, to know that it may not happen on my watch, right? Just like the first authors of the IPCC first and second reports, you know, they didn't know if, if global climate action would happen on their watch, but it didn't matter. And so, you know, strapping yourself in for the long game is part of what the IPCC is about and doing your best to move those next steps forward. And bringing that back to my own work at Georgia Tech has, has made me a little bit more peaceful in recognizing that you know it's not going to i'm not going to solve this in one day but if i surround myself with a bunch of people that care and we work together every day more closely than we did before i have faith that that we're moving in the right direction tell us something more in these uh, chaotic days uh, of uh, june 2020 yeah tell us something that um, we can do better in our uh, companies in our departments in the universities on campuses you that you have this experience I mean I I hate to sound so trite but I think it really does start with holding space for new and uncomfortable conversations and you know forcing those uh, with our friends with our family and within our institutions with our co-workers um, with our supervisors with our supervisees um, you know, I don't know how many conversations we need to have, but it needs to be a lot more than we've been having. And so I think the other thing to recognize is that um, none of this is a checkmark in a, in a list of things that's going to make it better. There's no such thing as that. This is a process. And so again, you know, strap yourself in <laughs> and, and maybe try to get something that is explicitly recurring recognizing that there's a process, put it on a schedule like so much in our lives. Um, in my uh, program and in my lab group, we are holding weekly meetings, something, a schedule that we came to collectively as part of our own learning, as part of building a, a community around this conversation that is recurring, and as part of us making sure that we can stay accountable to ourselves and not go back to an era when we went many, many, many months, if not years, uh, between these kinds of conversations. And so that, that's, I think, a great starting point. That's already hard, hard work within the institutions that we sit in. Isn't it frustrating that it takes so long? We, are, we maybe want to see some results. Uh, is, I don't know, I think we maybe grew up uh, 
uh, understanding that if you do something that is right, you're going to see results. But you are telling us in a way you have to be patient. You have to be patient. Well, here's here's the thing. You know, folks are watching. Folks are watching all the time what's going on around them, what conversations people are choosing to have, and what conversations they're not choosing to have. So whether you know it or not, you have a captive audience, always. So the people who really are the most impacted in your environments, maybe uh, black coworkers, they're watching <laughs> and they're waiting. And so these moves might seem very, very small, but they could have a very large impact on the environment for these people today, tomorrow, next week. And so I've really been so grateful to be part of a, a much larger conversation at Georgia Tech um, held by my dean in the College of Sciences. 150 people showed up on that virtual call last week uh, during June 10th um, uh, STEM, shutdown STEM uh, day on, on that day. And you know, people told stories that were horrifying about being victims of racism on campus and off campus. Um, uh, people who were uh, wanted to be uh, strong allies, uh, voice their solidarity and their intention to continue this process next week and the next week and the next week. And so, you know, this was the first ever of its kind. And um, I hope that these kinds of conversations continue. They are deeply powerful, not for the just the white people who are searching for a way to contribute to change but for those people who are taking part in this conversation for the first time in their lives as lifetime victims of structural racism and white supremacy. And so I'm not saying that's enough. It's not by any means enough, but it has an impact. It had an impact that very day. And Kim, health uh, scientists in the community of health scientists, uh, they're doing pretty bad at uh, representation. Yes. Um, minorities, uh, maybe also gender. Why is that? You, you in your um, role of professor of diversity, equity, and inclusion, you said you, you oversee several departments. What's wrong with uh, earth science? Well, I mean, you know, where where to start? I mean, there's everything wrong with science. Um, you know, we talk about so much about getting girls into STEM. Um, getting outreach programs for underrepresented minorities at the K through 12 levels. And there's no doubt that it, it starts there. The research shows us that it starts there with attrition from these fields, uh, you know, for any number of reasons. Uh, you know, the, the nature of the curriculum, uh, the, the structural uh, sexism and racism that they encounter at a very early age and very sensitive to those cues. And they just say, no, thank you. Um, parents who encourage them to do this other thing because they may know about the racism and the sexism that they encounter. And so these, these long memories are already impacting them. But we also know that those who do make it up to the next levels face a new set of hurdles. <laughs> and it, we know that every single level up into a career in science, you face a new set of hurdles that you must overcome uh, as a, a, a woman and as an underrepresented minority. And you know, if you're both, then you face all of these challenges, let alone if you have another uh, identity which is subject to any kind of isms or phobias like LGBT uh, or of course uh, other, other minority statuses disabled people. And so, you know, these are pylons that you may think you can escape from, uh, but, but you can't. And ultimately, you, ha you have to get through them. And so slowly but surely, we, we, weed, we have this process of attrition and people are excluded from science. And you end up with a field like geosciences where 10% of the senior ranks are women and less than 1% are underrepresented minority members. And so, you know, you ask, how do we fix this? You know, you have to look all the way down that, uh, that chain of folks who are moving through these hurdles. And then you also have to say, we have to reduce some of these hurdles. We have to knock them out of the way. And these are very small things, some cases. Some cases, they're huge things. Um, you know, we talk about, uh, structural bias, um, the fact that 
uh, depending on where you went to school in large part determines where you end up in college in large part determines where you end up in graduate school if you end up in graduate school and on force and so on from the socioeconomic perspective so much is baked in you talk about racism you talk about sexism you talk about the fact that women are trying to create families and build families when they are trying to get through some of the toughest hurdles that science will throw at them involving transcontinental moves and and fundraising and you know job applications and faculty searches i mean it's enough to to just you know deter even the most passionate budding scientist and so you know when when i look across the landscape as somebody who's a champion for diversity equity inclusion i see all these hurdles um, it is frankly overwhelming and i speak as a mother to four but i also speak as a white mother to four in science and so i recognize the privilege while i recognize you know the the systemic nature of some of these hurdles as well and it's defeating and it's depressing and it's overwhelming because it feels like we'll never get there but the only antidote for me is to actively become part of the solution every single day i am working to advance this agenda every single day i devote time to it and that's what it takes. And it takes a lot more than people like me doing that, of course. Um, but it is the way I continue forward as somebody who cares deeply about justice and equity. Uh, it keeps me going in the face of these pile of hurdles that I see people tripping over and leaving science over and just being absolutely miserable uh, pursuing the career of their dreams. Uh, so, you know, that's a very long-winded answer, but suffice it to say, um, there are a lot of hurdles that we have to work on, but it takes a lot of people to work on them together. I see, and uh, I thank you uh, also in the name of many other anonymous people that, that are listening, because um, it, if, you, if we have moved just a little bit, just an inch, each of us that was a powerful force and uh, during these last weeks and months i've been uh, moved and i learned so much in talking with uh, people that are passionate like you in this uh, topic of uh, racism and, and gender issues and, and many others that they are within the geological community that i care so much yes and so I, I learn myself, I learn to understand my privilege. Yes. That was something. Step one. <laughs> Step one. <laughs> Step one uh, for somebody coming from Europe is even more difficult um, yeah. to understand because we don't have uh, such a mix of uh, people. We don't have such a progressive, uh, uh, ideas on melting uh, our societies yet, especially in South, in the Mediterranean area. So I really thank you uh, for 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 these words, and uh, it is amazing how lucky you are being involved in the IPCC and in improving the problems, the hurdles that we have with the minorities. It has been an honor talking with you, Kim, and. Um, and Kim, also, I give you now one or two minutes if you want to add anything, uh, because you have a carnival of topics that you could talk about. And maybe you want to record something for our audience. So the mic is open, and uh, there you go. Thanks so much for this opportunity. It's been a, a real pleasure. And I should add, I'm, I'm married to somebody from Italy uh, who is also in science. So I understand uh, how profoundly different that perspective is and what a challenge it represents to, to truly understand the structural issues that we have here in this country, especially around race. So yes, I, 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 I hear that as well, that, that strong difference. I think what I'd like to say to the listeners is that you know there's never been a more important time for our community here in science and geoscience to come together and lift up our voice for the vision of the future that we want to have for science we do spend a lot of time of course complaining about what it's not but we have to begin to grab the arms of the people next to us and and move forward and build that future together we have got to begin and it can't just be a few of us 
um, out there on the margins uh, pushing this forward and advancing as it has to be a chorus. And I'm telling you, I promise you, that that is what is going to turn the tide. And it's just a matter of how quickly we're going to come to that realization and get going. <laughs> it's overdue. And the future is in our hands. The future is in your hands. So thank you for your work. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was another episode of uh, Mini Geology Show. Uh, this is Daniel Minizini. Today, we were with Kim Cobb, professor at the Georgia Institute of uh, Technology. Thank you so much, Kim. Thanks so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Thank you.